0: Good morning, everybody. I think I know everybody here, but if I don't, uh, welcome to Trinity. My name is Tom. I am uh, ex-pastor, pastor emeritus, something like that. Um, it's really a pleasure and honor to get to be back here with, with this church. Uh, if you did not get a listening guide on the way in, please throw your hand up. Uh, Alex will be sure to get you one of those, which will help you follow along. We practice a style of preaching here called expository preaching which just means it's kind of like a Bible study. When we open up the Word, uh, we're going to be going through a passage of Scripture sequentially and trying to understand what God was saying to his original hearers and what he is saying to the church today. The great broadcaster, Harry Carey, was once interviewing a respected astronomer, and he posed this question, Would you rather be the top scientist in your field or... Would you rather get mad cow disease? And this astronomer was taken aback by the question, as we all would be, and he, he said, uh, well, of course, I'd rather be the top scientist in my field. And Mr. Carey said, oh, good, I was afraid you were going to pick mad cow disease. And the astronomer was, was confused by this, as, as we all would be as well, and he asked, why would, you, why would you worry I would pick mad cow disease? Harry Carey responded, I don't know, I guess I'm just a worrier. You can laugh at that a little bit, (laughs) and we can laugh at this conversation, but anxiety and worry are common experiences for us all. The unknown, the uncertain, and the need to be in control cause us to be anxious about matters big and small. If we're young, we worry about school, dating relationships, getting along with our siblings, our parents. As we grow older, we begin to worry about money, we worry about our health, the health of those around us, the health of our parents, and if we should have children, there is virtually no shortage of things for us to worry about, whether it's their daily needs or their future prospects. And anxiety is all too common in the life of the believer as well. Jesus Christ did not promise his disciples a life of ease and comfort, in fact, he said the opposite. He said that in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. But how often we remember the first part of that thought and forget the second. Anxiety is much more than a mere unpleasant feeling to deal with. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, that anxiety, in fact, is a sin a sin that flows from not trusting our heavenly father. And as we turn to this portion of scripture, we will see in the words of Jesus a command to turn from the sin of anxiety by trusting in the God who provides. Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34. If you don't mind, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you do not have a copy of the scriptures, there should be a Bible in front of you and the words will also be on screen. Matthew chapter 6 Verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own own trouble. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, God, that you are the God who reveals yourself, the God who speaks. Thank you, Lord, that you know our needs. Thank you, Father, that as we come to your word, we come to the God who knows our anxieties, who knows all the things that might distract us who knows all the things that might prevent us from believing this command and heeding it and believing the promises that lie behind it would you give us your grace lord to listen now we pray in jesus name amen you can have a seat as you no doubt notice the first word of this passage is therefore and anytime you see a therefore you always have to ask what's it there for <laughs> Which is a silly question to ask because the answer is always the same. It's always there to connect what is being said to what was said previously. So, we need to look back at verses 19 through 23. And if you were here last week or listened online, David preached on these verses. And the point that Jesus is making is that your heart cannot be divided. You cannot love both God and money simultaneously. You will love the one or the other and you will hate the opposite. As Abraham Lincoln said about the Union prior to the Civil War, it was going to become either all slave or all free. A house divided against itself could not stand. And the same thing is here. If you love and serve money, by extension, you will hate God. And so logically, if you're going to love and serve God, you have to, in effect, hate money. But there's a problem. Because if you spend any time, you know, living, you know that money comes in handy. So how in the world are we supposed to hate money even in a relative sense? Does it mean that we are to literally sell everything that we have, give it to the poor, and go live in a cave somewhere? Does it mean that it's wrong to have a job, wrong to save money, wrong to plan for the future? Plenty of people think that that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. They think that Jesus was urging upon his followers an intentionally unsustainable lifestyle because he expected the kingdom of God to arrive either in his lifetime or in the years shortly to follow. Well, I don't think that's right. First of all, if Jesus was wrong about when the kingdom of God is coming, it means he's not God. And if he's not God, there's no reason for us to be here at all this morning. There's no reason to try to sift through this stuff and all the other stuff he was wrong about to try to find a few pithy moral sayings. We can't pick and choose with Jesus. It is all or it is nothing. But it doesn't fit the context either because what Jesus appeals to in these verses is not that the kingdom of God is going to come very, very quickly and you won't need stuff anyway. No, he appeals to the way that God provides for his creatures in ordinary ways every single day. So he's not telling us here to adopt an unsustainable lifestyle, but rather to turn from the sin of anxiety by trusting in the God who provides So there in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, Jesus gives us three reasons to turn from anxiety, three reasons not to be anxious. And the first he says in verse 25, do not be anxious because you are more than your needs. Notice, first of all, that this is a present active imperative. It is a command given in the negative. Do not be anxious. And this is worth dwelling on because we don't typically think about anxiety as something that we do, but a way that we feel. But the idea in the original Greek is that of giving thought to something, giving care to something. And that might not help you a whole lot more if you don't think that you can control what you think about. And if you think that, let me tell you, stop thinking that. The New Testament is crystal clear that while controlling our thoughts is not easy, We are nevertheless accountable to God for our thoughts. We don't have an out just because we are dealing with our inner life, with our thoughts and feelings. In fact, if we have been following along in the Sermon on the Mount, that's kind of Jesus' point, is that God is not merely concerned with our outward actions. He is primarily concerned with our inner life, our thoughts, our attitudes. And God has given us the means to submit our thoughts to him through his grace and the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. This is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a dynamic present in how we respond to the temptation to anxiety. When tempted, we we, we don't give in. Rather, we, we run to Christ Jesus. We run to him to satisfy us, to give us what sin is promising to give us in his place. We do more than say no. We look to Christ. You see, anxiety promises us that if we will but give in to worry, we will get to feel like we are in control. When we worry, we are implicitly telling ourselves that we are the ones who are in charge of whatever it is that we're worried about. So we don't hold on to the illusion of control. We run to Christ. We turn to the one who is actually in control. We turn to God in prayer. We ask him for what we need. We thank him for what he has already given us. And then... He he gives us what we need and we stop worrying, right? Well, maybe and, and maybe not. This verse does not promise a quick fix because God may or may not immediately meet that need the way we would like him to. But what he does promise to do is to give us his peace, which surpasses all understanding. In other words, as we turn from the temptation to anxiety, he gives us the means to turn from the temptation to anxiety. He helps us to obey this command not to worry. Jesus is commanding here in verse 25 do not be anxious. Specifically, we're not to be anxious about our lives and about having our needs met so that we can stay alive. That's what Jesus is talking about here with eating and drinking. Now, when we hear about food and drink, I think our minds typically go to where am I going to go have lunch after church? Or, if we're health conscious, we think about the foods that we would like to have, but we know we're really not supposed to have. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about food and drink in the most basic sense of sustaining your daily life. That's what his his audience is concerned about. They're poor. They're peasants. they're, They're oppressed, living under Roman occupation in an occupied country subject to all kinds of abuses and injustices. They're in an agrarian society where a change in the weather could be, mean for famine and mass starvation. They're day laborers where a fluctuation in the work environment could mean a day without food for them and their families. I doubt any of us here or those listening online, when we're tempted to worry, we get this basic. I, I don't think we do that. We might be tempted to worry about money, but it's, it's usually can I save up enough to go to that concert next week? Or, or maybe in the extreme, can I make my rent or my car payment? A big deal, no doubt. But when we worry, typically life and death are not hanging in the balance. They do for Jesus's original hearers. And yet Jesus tells them, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or drink. His commandment And the promises that we will see that undergird that commandment are not confined to small things, the little things that we typically worry about. There is no need so big, there is no need so urgent that we are allowed to then worry about it. That is because there is no need so big and no need so urgent that Jesus Christ cannot handle it. We are not to worry about food and drink, even if those are the only things that are keeping us on this side of the sod. And Jesus tells us not to either worry about our bodies. Specifically, we don't need to worry about what we will wear. Again, consider the context. These people aren't worried about whether their spring wardrobe is up to date. They're not worried about whether they can afford the new Steph Curry shoes. Most of them probably have two sets of clothing. They have a set of clothing for the Sabbath, and they have a set of clothing for the other six days of the week. Clothing literally means not having to go naked. It is a huge logistical problem. It's an affront to your dignity if you must go without clothing. Clothing has been an absolute basic non-negotiable need ever since Adam and Eve took the fruit. It's not something you can just do without because you're penny-pinching. And yet Jesus says, don't be anxious about this either. But how? How? How can he tell a group of first century Middle Eastern peasants who might not know where their next meal is coming from, who might not know if they'll have clothes to wear tomorrow beyond a set of rags, how can he tell them not to worry about these things? He tells them, and he tells us, we are more than our needs. He says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, you may have needs, but you are not your needs. You have a life, but your life is more than eating and drinking. You have a body, but your body is more than what you put on to cover it up. If this seems obvious to us, I think we're missing just how profound this really is. Consider our own consumeristic culture untold billions of dollars are spent every year telling us exactly one thing that we are in need and that need must be met immediately and it can only be met through a product that we can purchase that we never knew we needed beforehand to walk through a mall to flip through a magazine to watch an hour of television to scroll through facebook or twitter is to be bombarded with this message that we have needs urgent needs that must be met and can only be met through some product that they are trying to sell to us i don't think it's too much of a stretch to say in our culture that we are daily being told we are not human beings we are human needings and jesus very firmly says no you are not your needs your life is more than food your body is more than clothing because god made you for more He made your life and your body for more than just meeting the daily needs to sustain those things. He made your life and your body so that you could have a relationship with him where he is your first and your highest love. The fulfillment of a need need so deep that most of us are not even aware of it. And so that in the meeting of each and every legitimate bodily need, he might be honored and glorified as the God who is the source of all good things. We are more than our needs. We are more than our needs. We are men and women made in the image and likeness of God to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And so we need not be anxious even about our bodies, even about our most basic bodily needs. What bodily need have you worried about this week? Maybe even this morning. Maybe it's food. Maybe you're worried about eating the right kind of food whether you're eating too much. Maybe you're a parent, you're worried about, are your kids eating the right kind of food? Are they eating too much? Are they eating too little? Maybe you're worried about sleep. That's a tough one. Because when you lack sleep, it makes you more prone to anxiety and worry. We are embodied creatures. It, it makes you prone to worry and anxiety about, about Sleep which can rob you of sleep, which is the only thing that's going to take away that worry and anxiety about sleep. Maybe it's money, getting it, keeping it, using it wisely. Whatever your legitimate need is, whatever you need today in order to sustain your life and preserve your body, remember, God made you for more than simply having your daily needs met. Lift up your eyes. He made you ultimately for himself. So do not be anxious, Christian. Your life is more than food and drink, and your body is more than clothing. And do not be anxious, because God is your provider. Verses 26 through 30. Jesus, in these two verses several verses, leverages two illustrations from nature to demonstrate God's providential care for his creation. First, Jesus points out in verse 26, 26 and 27 that God feeds the birds of the air even though they don't sow or reap or store away in barns. There's a, a moment on, the epi- on an episode of the Golden Girls where an older man observes, do you ever notice the birds At the park, they want you to feed them, but at the beach, they just take care of themselves. And maybe you've noticed that. Maybe you've noticed that, uh, maybe you learned about animal feeding habits when you were in elementary school. You you learned this animal goes with this food, right? But maybe you haven't thought about it since then. But but isn't it amazing that almost every single living creature in this world is apparently self-sustaining? Right now, there are billions upon billions of creatures in this world hunting for food, eating food, digesting food, and the vast majority are doing it without any assistance from human beings. And indeed, they are all doing it without doing the same kinds of things that we human beings do in order to get food. And that's Jesus' point here. It's it's not that the birds of the air literally do nothing and just have food fall into their mouths. It's that they don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet doing those things is the everyday experience of Jesus' original hearers. When your whole life is consumed with sowing, with scattering seed in the field and then reaping and harvesting what is grown, and then storing away in barns what the harvest is so that you've got something to eat until next harvest, being reminded there that there are creatures in this world that eat without doing any of those things is jarring. It's startling. Think about your work-a-day life. Think about how tomorrow morning you're going to get up. You're going to go to work for eight, nine hours, listen to your boss, put up with your coworkers, Try not to lose your temper with a customer on the phone. Or if you're a stay at home parent, consider that you're going to get up, cook three meals, change diapers, cook, clean, do laundry, try to keep your kids alive until it's time to put them back in bed. And after you've got all that in your mind, consider that there are billions and billions of creatures that won't do any of those things tomorrow. Not one. They won't answer the phone, they won't send an email they won't go to a meeting they won't change a dirty diaper make a meal or discipline a child and yet jesus says your heavenly father will feed them this is not in any way meant to take away from the significance of our daily tasks but it's meant to detach them from ultimate importance. And it's meant to distinguish in our minds our performing of those tasks with God's provision of our daily needs. Because if we don't make the logical distinction between the two of them, we're never really going to believe that it is God who provides for us, whether through our jobs or even apart from jobs. We might give him ultimate credit. We might say, yes, God's the one who gives me the strength. God's the one who gives me the patience to work my job but we won't realize that God is every bit as capable of providing for our needs through a job or apart from a job. Now, you might think that all sounds great, but I'm not a bird. I can't just go out into the yard out there and pick a worm out of the ground and eat it. Surely, I can't expect God to meet my needs the same way that he meets the animal's needs. Well, Jesus anticipates this and asks two rhetorical questions in response first he asks this which is more valuable you or birds well the answer is obvious right and that's that's the point jesus is arguing from the greater to the lesser if god is so gracious that he will provide the needs for birds that have almost no intrinsic value whatsoever surely It's easier to believe that God is gracious enough to provide for the needs of his infinitely more valuable human creatures. So we have no excuse. No excuse for worrying about whether or not God will provide for us. Even if we're broke and we can't afford seed to sow. Even if we're injured or sick or stressed out or depressed and we can't reap the harvest. Even if the barn full of food for next year gets broken into or burns down. Brother or sister, whatever excuse you have for not trusting God to meet your needs today, you have no excuse. As surely as He provides for the birds of the air, He will provide for you. That's the first rhetorical question. Then He follows it up with a second in verse 27 Can you add even an hour to your life by worrying? Again, the answer to that question is no, you can't, but it is profound. I had to learn its profundity recently. I had found myself over the last couple weeks in kind of a dark place with all kinds of existential angst and dread about the future, about having to watch my kids one day grow up and move away. They're two and four right now, but still, I was worried about it. Watching my parents age, watching myself age, and, and feeling helpless to stop any of it. But through the help of my very wise, my very insightful wife, and I say that in perfect honesty, she is both exceptionally wise and insightful, I realized that I was trying to do exactly what Jesus says here I can't do. I was trying to add minutes to my life by worrying. And as awful as anxiety feels, it actually sometimes is scarier to stop feeling anxious. Again, because we truly believe that we're in control. And we truly believe that by being anxious, we can somehow stay in control of our lives. But it's bogus. You can sit in your bedroom all afternoon today and worry about the brevity of life and the fleeting nature of even the sweetest of experiences, and it won't add a second to your lifespan. In fact, medical research suggests that anxiety and worry can actually shorten your lifespan. But even more harmfully, worry will perpetuate this notion that life can only be going right if you are in control. Jesus says, no, you're not in control of your life. You don't need to be. Trust God. Trust God to provide for your needs. And trust God to make your life as long as it needs to be for his good pleasure down to the last hour. Don't be anxious about your life. And don't be anxious about clothes either, Jesus says, because in verse 28, God clothes the lilies of the field. Now, if you've never seen a picture of lilies in the field, that's okay, because I I brought one with me today. There you go. This is going to be great on the podcast, by the way. (laughs) Not bad. Not bad at all. I'd say, aesthetically, that's pretty hard to top. And yet... Jesus says, they don't toil or spin. We might say, they got out of bed looking like that. They they looked like that without even trying. In in Jesus' day, most people made their own clothes. And, And I don't mean that they drove to Hobby Lobby and got the fabric and the thread and then made the clothes from that. No, they had to gather plants and materials to make into thread They had to spin the the material into the threads, work the threads into cloth on a loom, and then make the cloth into clothes. It's a lot of work, and if you didn't do those things, you went naked. But the lilies don't do this. No gathering plants, no making thread, no making cloth, no sewing into clothes. And not only are they not naked, Jesus says in verse 29, they are better dressed than Solomon. If you're not familiar with Solomon, he is the most spectacular king in Israel's history in terms of wealth and splendor. 2 Chronicles 1.15 says that Solomon made silver and gold as common in Israel as stone. That, that means really, really, really common. It was everywhere. He was loaded. He has this spectacular, legendary wealth without comparison in Israel's history. And yet, Jesus says, even Solomon, in all his splendor, wasn't dressed like the lilies of the field. Solomon looked good, Jesus said, but he didn't look that good. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, verse 30 says. It's another argument from the greater to the lesser, as with the birds and their food, but it is amplified It's it's not just that the lilies of the field, who do not labor or spin to make their own clothes, nevertheless have clothes to wear. It's that they are actually better dressed than the best-dressed man in Israel's history. And all because God clothes them that way. And God does it not only in spite of their lack of effort, but also in spite of their fleeting nature. Here today, gone tomorrow, he says, alive on Sunday, thrown into the oven on Monday, If God does all of that, Jesus says, for the grass of the field that doesn't work for it, that doesn't even last all that long, if God can be that gracious to grass, is he not even more sure and certain that he will be gracious to you and provide you with clothing? Will he not do this for you, brothers and sisters? There's a little phrase there at the end of verse 30. O you of little faith comes up time and time again in the Gospels. Jesus is not speaking to people unprepared to hear him. Israel has had centuries of God working among them, God speaking to them, God giving them prophets and laws, preparing them for this moment, for the coming of his Messiah. And yet, Jesus is constantly remarking upon the deficiency of faith that he finds in Israel. At one point, he is so struck by the faith of a non-Israelite, a Roman centurion, that he comments that the faith of this outsider who lacks all of those spiritual advantages that Israel has, that this outsider has greater faith than he's found in Israel, where they have all the advantages. They have the law and the prophets and the psalms and the writings. And Jesus comments again on this deficient faith as he begins to bring his point home. Because given all of these reasons to trust God, all of these reasons to believe that he will meet our needs if we continue to worry if we persist in anxiety the fault is not in our in the object of our faith the fault is in our faith itself and yet the solution is not to just work at faith itself as though it were a means to an end or were an end in itself rather when when Jesus' disciples come to him and say increase our faith he says If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could do the impossible. You could tell a mountain to pick itself up and throw itself into the ocean. No, we don't grow our faith by focusing on faith. We grow our faith by focusing on the end and object of our faith, God and his promises to us in Christ Jesus. We read and meditate on and memorize and obey Scripture. We pray, we fast, we fellowship with other believers, we witness to the lost, we worship and praise God for what he has done for us in Christ Jesus and for what he does for us every single day in meeting the needs of his creatures, great and small. I urge you, brothers and sisters, if it is hard for you not to worry, if it is hard for you to trust God to meet your daily needs... Take your eyes off your needs and place them on God who promises to meet your needs, who has brought you through every want and need up to this point, and who promises to meet the needs of his creatures great and small, and who will in no ways be unfaithful to his promises. So do not be anxious, brothers and sisters, because you are more than your needs. And do not be anxious because God is your provider for those needs. And finally, do not be anxious, because you have a heavenly calling. Verses 33 and 34. Jesus here begins a great turn. By focusing, from focusing on our legitimate daily needs and those things which are necessary for life, to focusing instead on those things for which life is necessary. He says, do not be anxious about your daily needs, about what you will eat, drink, or wear. These are all the things that Jesus has has explained, that, that God provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. If we didn't get the point before, get it now. Don't worry about these things. Don't just listen to the nice word pictures about birds and lilies and and laugh at this idea of, of birds harvesting and lilies making clothes. Jesus has a point to all of this. It's to drive home again and again this imperative that we not be anxious about these things. Knowing that God provides for the birds and the lilies of the field and for all of his creatures doesn't give us the option not to worry. It doesn't just make it possible for us not to worry. No, it impresses upon us the command, the imperative, the order. Do not be anxious. Under any circumstances, but especially once we've reflected on the providence of God in everyday life, His loving, fatherly care for all of His creatures, if we continue in anxiety and worry about these things that he has told us he's got covered, if we continue in anxiety and worry, we are sinning, flat out, full stop, as surely as if we lie, cheat, steal, or engage in sexual immorality. Anxiety is a respectable sin. Everybody does it. It doesn't trend on social media when a pastor or a church leader worries about something. It doesn't matter. Jesus decides what is a sin and what we need to repent of. And if you have heard all this so far, that God provides for the needs of his creatures, and you're still worried about that bill, that school assignment, that doctor's visit, I urge you, brothers and sisters, repent. Repent of that sin as surely as you would repent of the sin of lust or covetousness or unrighteous anger or resentment. And if you need more reasons to not worry, Jesus gives them to you in verse 32. Jesus says that it is the Gentiles, the non-Jewish polytheistic pagans, including the Roman oppressors. It is the Gentiles who seek after food and drink and clothing. The Greek word there has the connotation of desire, wanting trying to find something out it implies effort and intent this is what the non-jewish people living in and around israel live for they live every day to get their basic needs met now this should not be taken as any kind of a racial comment by christ but fully as a religious one and we know this because shortly after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the church will explode among the Gentile populace in Palestine. No, God is no respecter of persons. Black or Hispanic or Middle Eastern or Asian or white, poor or rich, female or male, all are welcoming, all of their God-given diversity. All that matters is faith in Christ Jesus. But it's true that at this time, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the God of the Bible, is mainly confined to the members of ethnic Israel. So Gentiles here is the equivalent of what the New Testament often refers to as the world, as people who don't believe in Christ or confess him as Lord. Jesus is saying if if you see that God provides everything his children need, just as he does the birds of the air and the grass of the field, and, and yet you don't believe that God will do that for you. You're no better than the Gentiles. You're no better than people who have no faith whatsoever. That The point not at all being, hey, try to be better than those people, but the point being act in a manner consistent with your faith in God as the Father who loves and provides for you, which means, verse 32 continues, resting in the knowledge that God knows what you need just as the christmas carol says he knows our needs to our weakness he is no stranger god knows our needs because god knows everything he is omniscient the only condition for god to know something is for that thing to be true he knows exactly how much food is in your refrigerator. He knows exactly how much money is in your bank account. And not only that, because God has walked among us as a human being, he knows firsthand what it is like to be in need, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be without clothing. Jesus was not a rich man. He wasn't privileged. He was a poor, oppressed Middle Eastern peasant living in an occupied country. He knew hunger and thirst and nakedness in ways that most of us don't and probably never will. Jesus knows that we need. Jesus knows what we need. And Jesus knows what it is like to need. And this means that even though we need food and drink and clothing because God knows we need them, We do not have to seek after them the way that the unbelieving world does. Instead, Jesus says in verse 33, we must seek first the kingdom of God. Knowing that God knows all about your needs and it's promise to meet your needs, frees you to seek after the kingdom instead. It, It frees you not to seek after fleeting earthly things, but to seek after the only things that will matter into eternity, the everlasting kingdom of God. None of us are immune to feelings of regret in life. There is nothing that we regret so much as wasted time. But the only way that we can avoid wasting time, the only way, as John Piper reminds us, that we can avoid wasting our lives is to stop being anxious about the things of this life and to seek after the only things that will matter into eternal life. God's kingdom, God's rule and reign in this world that is already here and yet is not quite here all the way. It means that we are to devote our lives to proclaiming Christ, to making disciples, to pushing the gospel into places it has never been before. And it means we pursue God's righteousness. Now, the word righteousness doesn't just refer to doing good things spiritually. It has the connotation of justice as well. So we, we don't just practice the spiritual disciplines and avoid moral impurity. We are to do those things, and we are also to treat others with justice. Because Jesus Christ has satisfied the perfect justice of God against sin on the cross and has made us just in the eyes of God and has given us his spirit so that we might grow in the practice of justice being people of justice we therefore work to be the kinds of people that God commands us to be and to see the world around us become more just as well. Only then Will we avoid wasting our lives on the things that don't ultimately matter? Things that that God knows that we need and has promised to provide for us. And if that's not enough, Jesus says that if we will do this, if we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we'll get all that other stuff thrown in too. God who calls us to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness will meet our daily needs along the way. In other words, if you seek daily, if you chase after food and drink and clothing, you're going to miss out on what truly lasts. But if you put the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, you'll get those things and you'll get the other stuff thrown in too. Because the God whose kingdom and whose righteousness you are pursuing is the God who knows your needs and promises to meet them. Finally, Jesus broadens his overall point and emphasizes the practicality of it. He says in verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. We are to seek the things of God first. We are to trust him to meet our needs every day to meet our needs along the way. And we're not just to trust him to do it one day, but to do it tomorrow as well so that we don't spend time today being anxious about what may or may not happen tomorrow. And at this point, after everything that has been said, if we need still more reasons not to worry, still more reasons not to be anxious, Jesus is as practical as he can possibly be. He tells us, Tomorrow will worry about itself. Sometimes we need our eyes open to the spiritual realities that are around us, but sometimes we need our eyes open to mundane realities that God has placed before us. Tomorrow will do its own worrying. You do not need to do tomorrow's worrying today. Leave that for tomorrow. Take care of today's cares and today's troubles today. I love how Matthew Henry puts this. He says, What folly is it to take that trouble upon ourselves this day by care and fear, which belong to another day and will never be the lighter when it comes? Let us not pull that upon ourselves together all at once, which providence has wisely ordered to be borne by parcels. I think this is where a lot of us lives. A lot of us live. God gives us grace day by day, and that grace is sufficient for us. His power made perfect in our weakness. But even as we try to get a handle on the trouble that is facing us today, we compound our problems by borrowing trouble from tomorrow. Don't do this, Jesus says. God's grace today is enough for the troubles of today. Don't try to face all at once what God in his providence has ordained for you to face one day at a time. Feel like God's only given you grace enough for today? Trust him today. Feel like God's only given you enough grace for the next five minutes? Trust him for the next five minutes. But surely it can't be that easy, right? Just just trust God and all my needs will be met Does this this mean that no true Christian has ever had their needs unmet? That, That no true Christian has ever gone without food or drink or clothing? Even to the point of death? That no Christian has ever starved to death? No Christian has ever died of thirst or exposure? It's a hard question. And I think the answer is no. This is not a blanket promise That if you trust in God, then you will never, ever, ever have to go without any of those things. I don't think it even means that you cannot one day die or have the lives of people you love claimed by the lack of these things. But it means this. That the God who is in complete control of your life from start to finish as you seek his kingdom and his righteousness will give you what you need to sustain your life for as long as he ordains you to keep living it. That as long as he has work for you to do in this life, he will keep you here. He will bodily and physically sustain you as he does. And when he calls you home, be it through age or illness or physical harm or accidents, He will not have in any way been constrained or compelled to do so because of some need of yours that he lacks the power to meet. No, he will be calling you home to his table, laden with choice food, to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, where you will drink the wine of joy and gladness with Christ Jesus that he himself promised he would not touch until you got there. You will be clothed forever in the white robes of righteousness that have been washed in Jesus' blood that he has provided for you. And you will have an eternal dwelling place in the mansions and the house of God that he has gone ahead to prepare for you. And all of this, the meeting of your daily needs and the provision of your eternal needs, all of this will be done because God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, put on flesh and blood and faced need for you. Jesus went 40 days in the desert without food or drink. He faced hunger and thirst, all for you. He went to bed late and got up early to pray. He faced sleep deprivation and tiredness, for you. He faced stress so extreme that he sweated drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, all for you. His followers abandoned him, and he faced loneliness and isolation, all for you. He went through scourging at the hands of the Romans by the cat of nine tails, enduring the agony of his flesh being ripped from his bone, all for you. He hung naked on a cross and cried out, I thirst, facing nakedness and thirst for you. And he hung on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that you deserve, facing death and cosmic justice, all for you. And he rose again so that if you would turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in him, he would meet your deepest need of all for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could stop worrying and be able to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first because Jesus Christ knows what you need and will provide what you need today and every day, both now and forevermore. And if you find yourself consumed with anxiety today, about the troubles and cares of tomorrow, you can stop. Jesus knows what you need. He has experienced need for you. You will have what you need from the hand of God for as long as you need it. And if you realize today that your true need is not for food or drink or clothing, but it is to repent and place your faith in Christ, I urge you to do so now. Turn from whatever it is that you've trusted in, from whatever false saviors you have set up for yourself, from your earthly labors, from your bank account, from from worry itself and the illusion of control. Turn from these false saviors and place your faith in the one who has faced every need and every human care for you to provide for you the eternal provision of your heavenly Father. Let's pray.